Hello, evolutionaries, and welcome to the For the Evolution of Business podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Brady, and I'm here today with Fahim Masood. Fahim has served as president and CEO of ESL Federal Credit Union since March 2016. ESL is the largest locally-led financial services institution in the greater Rochester area and has assets of $6.8 billion. ESL is one of the largest credit unions in New York State and in the top 1% of more than 7,000 federally insured credit unions in the U.S. They've also been nationally recognized as a great place to work, best small and medium-sized workplace nine times since 2010. Fahim previously served as president and COO since May of 2012. In that role, he directed the personal banking, business banking, and wealth management lines of business. Fahim launched his career at ESL in 91 as a senior financial analyst. Fahim received a bachelor's degree in economics from Allegheny College and earned an MBA from the State University of New York at Buffalo. Active in the community, Fahim serves on the board of directors of the Greater Rochester Chamber of Commerce, United Way of Greater Rochester, Jiva Theta Center, Lifetime Healthcare Companies, and its Rochester Regional Advisory Board, as well as the Community Depository Institutions Advisory Council and the Federal Reserve Bank. Thanks so much for joining us today, Fahim. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So how did you, it looks like you started with a, with a degree in economics, but was there, did you always know with that that you were going into banking or how did you develop this kind of interest? Uh, absolutely not. I fell into banking because it was the first job I actually got that paid, gave me a paycheck and I was in desperate need of a paycheck. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. You fell, fell into something pretty good then. It certainly worked out, uh, and, but no, it was a very fortunate path to be put on, uh, uh, started uh right out of college in financial services uh, after about a three-month search uh, and uh, started in the accounting field and then grew from there. And and I'm looking back as well, in addition to your own personal history, there's a, a pretty momentous year for uh, for ESL and a, a big anniversary, right? Yes, we are very excited. It is our 100th anniversary formed by George Eastman in 1920. And uh, uh, we are trying to integrate uh, uh, the 100th anniversary into much of what we're doing. And uh, it's quite a significant moment uh, to uh, have lasted 100 years and looking forward to uh, the next century and what we can do for our community here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and one of the things that was interesting to me as I was looking kind of through, there was a, a certain point, uh, I believe it was 96, where you had a change in your charter to become ESL Federal Credit Union, whereas you started Eastman Savings and Loan, kind of for uh, Kodak employees, started by George Eastman. But you've been a part of that entire that entire transformation. I, that's that's true since 1991. And it's, uh, it's really neat why ESL was started, Eastman Savings and Loan, as you mentioned, uh, George Eastman uh, was bringing employees from all around the country to Rochester, and uh, he thought it important that they ground themselves and become members of the community. And one of the ways he thought that would be accomplished was by helping them buy houses. And this is before the housing finance system, so he said, let me start a financial institution to help my employees save and uh, get uh, mortgages. Uh, so you know, fast forward on through till uh, about 95, uh, uh, we were so closely associated with Kodak and uh, basically charted a much more independent course at that time. And uh, the management at that time did an evaluation of various uh, what they call charters, the licenses to operate, and determined the credit union charter was the best fit. And I believe February 1st, 1996, uh, we, uh, uh, we converted to a credit union charter and uh, essentially became uh, more of a community financial institution. So tell us a little bit, some may or may not be familiar, 
probably many have heard the term uh, credit union, but well, what makes that different than a traditional bank? Uh, credit unions usually have an affinity group. Uh, there are some common bond with people. For us, it's uh, basically the community we're in. Started with Kodak, but there are a number of companies uh, that are in what is called a field of membership. But probably the most fundamental part of a credit union is it is owned by its members. It exists to serve its members. It doesn't have shareholders. It only has members who uh, are, are the beneficiaries of the work that's done. So in many ways, it is what's called a financial cooperative, uh, existing for the benefit of the membership. And among the principles of cooperatives that uh, we embrace are uh, sharing our financial success with our community, sharing our financial success with our members, because our members are the same as our owners. So that, that that probably is among the most distinguishing characteristics. We do not have uh, uh, separate owners that uh, are different stakeholders than the people that we serve. Yeah, that's a very interesting model. I know that the you know cooperatives exist in in, in other industries as well, and it does create a uh, you know just an interesting way to really embed yourself in the community. And, and you know, one of the questions I often ask podcast guests is whether or not kind of this more purposeful, you know, community-focused mission was baked in from the start or whether it was more of an evolution. And, and, and really, you know, from the, from your explanation of George Eastman starting it, really had more of this community and then really almost doubled down on it when you became that credit union. Uh, absolutely. And I think we've uh, really reconnected uh, with the origins of the institution about why George Eastman started us. And uh, uh, a few years ago, actually, as we started doing our strategic planning, we really went back to our roots and uh, actually defined a purpose uh, to, uh, uh, to help our community thrive and prosper. And our mission links in with that purpose. And among the things in our mission, of course, we have to deliver financial services, but we do create superior experiences. But within the mission, very much codified is the fact that we reinvest our financial success into the community and share it with our membership. Uh, and that's really a distinguishing part of us, um, us is the fact that we recognize uh, the true relationship between the community and the, uh, the organization. In many respects, we won't be here, wouldn't be here if we didn't have a thriving community. So we see that as a direct responsibility to contribute to that and uh, to design ourselves uh, to make sure that that's happening. So we are now on a journey uh, to better understand what that means and uh, remove what we call some contradictions in our business practices that uh, may not be consistent with that uh, thought process. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting when you're thinking about kind of the ways that you do try to integrate those things, the, the, the give back and, and the ways that you're treating your employees and, you know, looking at it in a really holistic sense in, in terms of that that conscious capitalism ethos. And, and you're really a great example of how in the long run, that culture focus, that community focus ends up creating more loyal employees, more loyal customers and leads to financial success. And and I think part of your part of your, I guess, kickoff to your 100th birthday celebration was the, the largest ever owner's dividend, right? Uh, absolutely. It was a $20 million dividend this year. It's now the 24th consecutive year 
uh, just under $150 million that we've returned to membership. And uh, that was just, again, codified in the mission. We had a, a good year, and uh, we assessed what our needs were to finance the business uh, and uh, determined that that was uh, an amount that would be uh, uh, adequate uh, to uh, sustain the business to return to our membership. Uh, and uh, that's just another way in which we return value uh, to being part of the uh, credit union. Uh, and it was very exciting for us, as you said. It is the largest one. Last year, we gave back 15 million. This year, it was 20 million. And uh, uh, you know, again, future dividends are based on uh, our continuing success. But um, uh, we intend on continuing a dividend as far as we have success, as long as we have that. Yeah, I love that. So, how do you then balance? Because I know that you uh, are very charitable throughout uh, throughout the community. How do you kind of balance that that purpose and profit? Again, I think that in the long run they definitely uh, can coexist and even reinforce each other. But sometimes there are some uh, short-term trade-offs that you have to make. So, so what kind of discussions go on in terms of trying to balance that? So uh, as you said, you, know, you do have to have profit. You can't sustain yourself. Uh, first, and f- uh, first and foremost, we have to serve our membership with the core needs they have from a financial services perspective. And that means we have to generate capital, and that's what profit does. It allows us to afford uh, delivering the services to our members. Now, beyond that, then, the uh, question is, well, how do you want to conduct business? Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, this is not all feel good. It certainly, I have to say, it does really feel good to be <laughs> purpose-driven. And uh, that is great. But from a business uh, perspective, if you think longer term, uh, what is good for the community is good for all participants in the community. Uh, so for us, strengthening the community means strengthening our business opportunities, strengthening our employees, strengthening our membership. All of us will prosper if the community prospers. You can't have one part of the community succeeding and say the community is succeeding. Uh, so you do need a collective uh, impact, if you will. Uh, uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, you do need to manage with discipline. Uh, we have very uh, uh, disciplined ways in which we manage ourselves uh, to ensure that we are generating the capital necessary. Uh, But beyond that, we also have very disciplined ways in which to determine how we invest in the community and ultimately how we return capital to the membership as well. So what are some of the ways uh, that you are in your in terms of your giving that you're you know measuring success? What are, what are some of the kind of strategic areas where you're trying to have the most impact? So a couple of things. I'll talk a bit about uh, how we got to the point of determining that. And uh, we didn't sit in a room and say, you know, what's best for our community? We're bankers. Uh, uh, there are many uh, people throughout our community who have been working in this space for a long time who really know what uh, the issues are and uh, have a good mindset about what some of the needs are in the community. So we actually, working through uh, an outside entity, uh, engage the community in understanding uh, ultimately what will create a healthy, resilient, equitable Rochester. That was somewhat clear to us that that is important as a community. But how to get there? Again, we needed to engage with the community, the community leadership, to find out what areas are necessary for us to focus on. And they surfaced uh, what are the key things that, if supported, would contribute 
to uh, creating a healthy, uh, resilient, prosperous Rochester. And uh, those are the areas we're focusing on. Among them are strengthening neighborhoods, uh, are uh, creating individual opportunities, uh, strengthening the systems and organizations that do such a terrific job of providing social supports in our uh, community, among other things that we're focusing on. But again, the important thing is we did not come up with the solutions. We spent the time to understand uh, what our community believes it needs, and then our job is to find ways in which to support that uh, uh, in the way the community asks us to. Uh, and that's what we did. Last year, we uh, had uh, over $15 million that we put into the uh, uh, community. One of our larger gifts was $5 million to uh, that will be distributed through the United Way. But that really came about from uh, United Way's uh, uh, understanding of what some of the needs were. So uh, two particular projects were launched uh, uh, related to that, and we funded that. And probably the other biggest investment was through MCC, a multi-year investment of $4 million uh, that will close some gaps uh, for uh, funding for students who otherwise might fall out of the system. So it is about contributing in the way that will strengthen a lot of what's going on in the community already. I, I just love that. And, and I think one of the ways the, you're so intentional about how you go through that process and, and how you include everyone in that process so that that, that discussion really then when, when you come up with what whatever the final not answer, but whatever the final framework is, uh, that people feel a, a sense of ownership, and then they also feel a little bit more, uh, you know, ownership over creating it and, and making that happen in the future. Uh, but one of the other things that I think you do so well, and in, in the again the the great place to work is a is a kind of stamp of approval on that is not only are you giving back to the community, but you've really, uh, especially over the last ten years of of applying for the great place to work, really proven that this has to be for our employees as well. This this conscious capitalism has to be both inside of our building right. and without, uh, you know, outside of our building. And so, what are some of the things that I, again you've been you've been there for most of this transformation? What was the discussion when it was decided? Hey, we should really chase after this this uh, this award. So the award is a byproduct. It was really not the the destination. Uh, the fantastic thing about participating in this process is you get a wealth of information about best practices throughout the country uh, to meet the need of employees, uh, to meet their needs. And uh, so it gave us a way to benchmark what we were doing. And uh, certainly we celebrate the fact that we are a great place to work. We're very proud of that. Our employees are very proud uh, because we're not a great place to work because of uh, management or me. It's what we 840 people do collectively. So there's a lot of shared pride in that. But the uh, the intent behind it was to broaden our lens on understanding what are the best practices out there. And a byproduct of participation in the service survey is a wealth of information on how others are doing. And then the community you can tap to understand what practices uh, are, uh, are making a difference. You can highlight which areas we need to focus on to improve uh, things that we're doing well that we need to sustain and bolster, perhaps. Uh, but it's a whole process. And part of the commitment was uh, it's one thing to participate. It's another to design activities based on the feedback you get. 
So don't bother participating if you're not going to actively design an ongoing process to say, now what are you going to do? Uh, I believe the very first year we participated, we did not make the list, but we learned a lot. Uh, And uh, we applied those learnings into our ongoing process of how do we enhance the employee experience and uh, change some of our practices, introduce things. And that's an ongoing process. We not only use a Great Place to Work survey, we have another uh, third-party administer survey for us, uh, which allows us to drill down more at a unit level. Uh, as a company, we know from great places to work how we're doing, but this other survey allows us to sort of say at a department level how we're doing. We have a very disciplined process of action planning based on feedback. So we engage employees. We encourage participation. We read the thousands of comments we get. Some are tough to read, mm-hmm. uh, but most of them are very gratifying. And that's important because you do need to know what you're doing well so you can keep doing it. Uh, so, I mean, again, great place to work award. We're very proud of that. But the reason for the participation was the benchmarking and the wealth of information on how we, we uh, what bra- best practices are needed to succeed. Yeah, you know, you're totally uh, on point to a lot of the things that I often hear and often try to tell people as well, just in terms of getting that feedback is really important. Uh, you know, feedback is the, is the breakfast of champions, I, I like to say sometimes. But, you know, being able then not only to take it, but to do something about it. Because if you ask all your employees and then they don't see that there's any returns on it or any initiatives or projects that come from it, then they're probably after a while going to stop giving you much feedback because they don't see the point. Absolutely. That is a big part. That right on. You have to, uh, if you want input, you have to reinforce it by demonstrating you're actually doing something with that input. It's valued and it's uh, honored. And uh, that is a big part of the relationship of the surveys with the employees. They participate at a very high level. I believe we're in the mid to high 70s because they trust that they can make a difference in our future. And, uh, you know, we certainly have the intent to design our employees' experience the correct way, our membership's experience the correct way, but we don't always get it right. Uh, So that feedback loop is critical uh, to understanding, geez, did we get it right? Or what could we be doing different? Or our preferences changing? Uh, Is there something that we don't have a broad enough lens uh, to view through? Uh, the employees give us that, and that 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 is really a really foundational strength we have, is listening, and responding and communicating how we're responding to build that trust that your voice matters. And uh, frequently we will say to our employees, we are strong because you participate, uh, and uh, we demonstrate action uh, from that participation. So is there anything from, again, more than 10 years worth of these surveys, anything that you can point to in terms of any projects or initiatives or things that have come from it or kind of best practices that you've learned from others in the in the Great Place to Work community that you've tried to implement? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'll, I'll say a lot of learnings internally first uh, because that feedback is so tremendous. Uh, I, I can point with disappointment to a time when uh, – uh, our employees were feeling a lot of pressure on certain expectations, and uh, it took uh, some time for them to be expressing that for us to say, wow, this does not sound like us. We were doing certain goal setting uh, that was really in conflict with uh, uh, 
who we are. Uh, it was not the intent, but that's how it was coming across. So we changed our goal setting uh, and uh, uh, went a lot away from individual goals to team goals uh, to address, uh, even though our intent was not to create that pressure, the outcome was pressure was being created. You have to deal honestly with what the outcome is. And we said, okay, uh, we need to reverse course and do something different. We do those things. The other things uh, certainly around uh, uh, seeing some reaction to certain initiatives we have uh, that we want to uh, make sure we modify. Uh, uh, we are very careful about hearing about uh, changes in the employee experience we introduce because of uh, uh, the environment people are, operate, uh, are working in. Uh, so we very anxiously look forward to the input on that. I say anxious because we want to know if we got it right. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, uh, this, uh, you know, this, as I said, there's a continuous effort on that. Uh, one area that we've uh, uh, made some significant progress and uh, is recognition. Uh, we have a great culture of recognition, uh, but it wasn't filtering down to everyone. Uh, but through the feedback process, through measurement process, the recognition efforts improved considerably, and we know that is so foundational to employee engagement. Recognition is not only monetary. It is about acknowledgement, and uh, it really creates an engaged environment. So those those are some of the things that are off the top of my head I can think of. That's perfect. No, well, in, in one of the things, the, the first example you gave in terms of uh, you know, when goal setting, whether it becomes too individual or, you know, it, it's great that both of you were asking for feedback, but also people were, were willing to speak up because I, I thought of, you know, if that gets taken, you know, keeps going for years and years. I was thinking of like a like a Wells Fargo, right, where they set they, they set this goal of we got to open up as many accounts as possible. And, and it's well intentioned. Right. But then you over focus on any one goal and you kind of optimize that and, and lose the the health of the overall organization. So you created an organization where not that that was ever, I don't, probably even the people that put that in place at Wells Fargo, that wasn't their intent, uh, but it did get taken to, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the 11th, you know, 12th, 13th degree and, and didn't really, wasn't productive for, for the company. And so you had a culture where people were willing to give that feedback, uh, which is really important, but then also, okay, what can we do differently? How can we create more group level goals? How can we really focus on what really matters? And that just brought up for me, I was wondering, other than this culture survey, what are some of the ways that you try to create a more broad spectrum of measurements for kind of what I call measuring what matters, right? Beyond just the bottom line. So we have a scorecard. We believe in a balanced scorecard approach. Uh, our scorecard uh, really is uh, supporting what we call a strategy map. Of, uh, and uh, if you can visualize a strategy map as uh, uh, having four sectors, the foundation of that strategy map is what we call people, tools, and culture. And we have a number of measures uh, related to uh, everything from employee turnover, employee feedback on recognition, uh, em employee feedback on if they have the uh, tools necessary to do their work, uh, all of those kind of measures. So that is the foundational uh, part of our business is how are our employees being positioned to succeed. Uh, above that is we are a highly process-oriented uh, organization. We deliberately design the work we do. We are, we are very deliberate about that. We have measures related to that. But then we get to the outcome measures. 
Uh, what are the measures, uh, outcome measures for our stakeholders? It can be net promoter scores, which is a great way for us to know how our membership is feeling about uh, 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 how they're being treated. Uh, if they would buy the next financial product from us, if they would recommend us, uh, we, we are, uh, have bonuses, which are directly tied to the net promoter score. Everyone from me through uh, the teller has the same uh, bonus uh, tied to the net promoter score. Uh, we have at the very highest level is uh, the outcome of uh, earnings. So earnings is just one measure across the entire scorecard. All those scorecard measures need to be in balance to, to say we're succeeding. They have to be people measures. They have to be work design measures. They have to be measures of our stakeholders, satisfaction of, of, with what's happening. And then ultimately, there has to be balance, going back to an earlier question, of profit. Uh, you can't afford to do all those things if you're not generating profit. But it is a circle, right? If you're not doing all those things, you won't drive enough profit. And uh, we tend to observe that uh, uh, we do things right. Usually, measures do come out uh, in balance. Yeah, well, now, ESL is such a great example of how, in the long run, all of those stakeholder interests are really aligned. What's best for the company is also going to be best for the community, best for the employees, best for the environment. But we're really locked in this short-term mentality where instead all the stakeholders get pitted against each other. So what do you think it's going to take for business leaders to evolve for a more longer-term mindset? The demand from the stakeholder that's looking for a return on their capital, the investor, uh, uh, to produce short-term results. Uh, I think until that mindset changes a lot, uh, uh, business leaders won't be completely freed uh, to do what I'd say they know is right. Uh, uh, we are fortunate, as I said, we have a tremendous number of business leaders in our community that uh, uh, find ways uh, in which to champion that and uh, participate. Uh, uh, but uh, I I. I, I, I think it's important for me to always recognize that as a mutual or a cooperative, uh, I don't have that stakeholder that's looking for a return on capital. And that's a complicator. Uh, all investors are not judging people by their long-term uh, benefit that they provide. They may be judging them more short-term. So I think continued evolution, and I think there's some thought starting towards viewing results from a long-term perspective. That is necessary in order to align stakeholders, including community, because community impact does not happen year every year. Or it, you invest today, you don't see the results right away. It is something that's long-term. And uh, that's a disconnect uh, for, uh, for businesses. Uh, so uh, I'm very respectful uh, about having uh, uh, the ability uh, to activate uh, what we do uh, because of uh, uh, some of the freedoms we have because the uh, stakeholders being more aligned. But I do think there's uh, uh, been much discussion, uh, certainly Raj through conscious capitalism, uh, but more broadly, at least I think in the business schools, there's some discussion starting about what is the role of uh, a business relative to the community uh, is it, or is maximizing profit the only role? 
I, I, I share your optimism, certainly. And, and I do actually, I just saw just the other day, there was a, a, a conscious capitalism like business case study in the, in, in the Harvard business. They had like a, a simulation for conscious capitalism. So I do think that that needs to be a part of it as well as I, I've, I've even seen some stats where uh, folks that come into business school start with a little bit more of a socially conscious, uh, you know, socially minded idea of what business can or should be, and it kind of gets beaten out of them by the time they're, they're at the end of business school. So hopefully we can start to change that. I, I, you know, I can't say enough about that's one of the most difficult tasks in going through this journey, is reprogramming ourselves to make business decisions through a different lens. Uh, it's still business, but to bring into the discussion uh, of uh, uh, how do you assess your business results with a broader context, we are not trained to do that. And it takes some uh, uh, rethinking our approach to business decision making. Uh, that uh, 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 It takes time to do that. We've, we're, we're on that journey. We've made certain business decisions, which we may not have made years ago. Uh, but because we're starting to see things differently, uh, we're making different decisions. Uh, um, uh, I, I, I think one of the ones that uh, we just recently made, and a lot of it was due to our participa- uh, participation in the, uh, the anti-poverty efforts, was our learning about how part-time work affects lives, uh, that people who are looking to get 40 hours, if you're only offering them a 32-hour job, they still need to work to get enough wages out of 40 hours, but they can't go get an eight-hour job. They wind up getting another 24-hour job. So they're working 56 hours, never spending time with families, having to make so many different compromises, always juggling childcare. So as we understood that, we made the business decision that anyone who wants to work full-time has a full-time job. And we'll adjust to that. Now that cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars. I say cost. That was the initial decision. But I do. we have faith in the fact that that decision will lead to greater employee uh, loyalty. And by loyalty, I mean it will reduce turnover because people will find that ESL as an employer is doing right by them. So it will pay us back in terms of reduced turnover. And uh, it took us some time to be able to understand that and bring it in because it is a hard decision. Now, it's very different for someone like us who's 840 employees to absorb that uh, versus, say, a person who has a 10-person shop. As you I asked before, how do you make the trade-offs? That's a hard trade-off for someone who's got sure. a 10-person shop, much lower revenue uh, versus us. So in context, that's a decision we could make. Perhaps there are other decisions, other businesses that can make that aren't quite as big but are still impactful. So uh, that would be something that we need to needed to rethink about. And uh, we do know that that is going to, we have a real belief that that will impact uh, 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 the turnover. We also just recently decided uh, to uh, change what our minimum starting salary was. Uh, Again, learnings from uh, participating in community forums. Uh, And again, that's important. Uh, And uh, uh, it it increases uh, uh, what people are economically able to afford. So we've got to look in our house first and make sure we're doing the right things. And uh, But I am very respectful that 
when you have scale, you can make some choices uh, that others perhaps can't. Yeah, well, there's it. You know, it comes with with positives and negatives. I'm, I'm sure that one of the things that I've found in, in my work with with companies a, a lot is that, in addition to that that growth, you know, it does offer you some some economies of scale and some abilities to absorb some of those things. But sometimes it's more of a challenge to maintain a, a great culture as you're growing. You know, every everybody that you're adding into the organization becomes a co-author of that culture by the ways that they're interacting. And, you know, when you're hiring quickly or you're doing mergers, acquisitions, things like that, it, it becomes more difficult. So has that be, has that come up for you? Has there been any things that you've found to be able to kind of scale your culture, so to speak, along with your growth? So that's a that's a huge challenge. So I started 28 years ago. We were 175 employees. We had 840 employees about there. And we are probably uh, cycling and growing by about 5% a year. A lot of new people coming in. Uh, so you have to perpetuate the culture, and it does get harder as you get larger. But there are techniques we use. We do a lot of things to celebrate our culture, to identify parts of our culture that are valued by our employees and our members, and we recognize that. We do a lot of storytelling uh, so that people who are coming in understand this is not just talk. It is actually the life people live at ESL. So you have to be very deliberate. You can't put it on autopilot. So you talk about great place to work. One of the important things is, is to recognize what we're doing well and to say, what are we going to do to sustain that? It's very deliberately doing things to sustain that because, as, as you said, there are new employees coming in all the time. Even current employees' needs are changing. But we have to do deliberate activities to perpetuate that culture and communication, celebration, storytelling, uh, feedback, uh, uh, recognition, as I said, of the right uh, uh, values being demonstrated are all important ways in which we reinforce and perpetuate the culture. I love that. I, I think that storytelling is one of the uh, most underappreciated aspects of, of leadership and building culture. You know, you can, it's one thing to read, here's our mission and our values, you know, on the plaque on the wall or in the handbook, but you start to tell stories and from the time they were little kids, that's the way that we learn what's right and wrong and what's expected of us. And, and telling those stories about, you know, us at our best, that ESL or whatever your organization is, becomes such a more vivid descriptor uh, that, that is much more memorable. Right. Now, a number of years ago, we worked with our uh, employees. So all of us worked together to identify what we thought were our values. We actually wrote them down. Uh, we didn't come up with these should be our values, but this is what we all felt our values were. Uh, so we have five values. We documented them, and we put a whole recognition program around them. Employees nominate their colleagues for what we call a values in practice or VIP award. Every quarter, we celebrate our VIP award winners. Uh, they receive a nominal uh, 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 monetary award, um, but we invite them all to a wonderful breakfast and we re read the story of what they did to live up values in some exemplary way. Everything from going out of the way to having an impact on another employee, to a member, to just being themselves. Uh, that's great part of the storytelling. So anywhere from 40 to 70 people every quarter, we read their stories, talk about that. 
and we highlight what values they demonstrated. So the, again, very deliberate design, but I have to tell you, I read me and my director of human resources, community impact, uh, Maureen Wolf, read these stories. There are times, I mean, it's amazing what people do. And uh, uh, you can get a bit choked up talking about what people are doing. These are real human beings helping human beings. And uh, that's what our values are about. I, I just love that. Yeah, you know, and, and that gets back to one of the things you were saying earlier. Some of the things that you can do, um, recognition often doesn't have to be monetary. You know, those things those things go far far beyond any kind of monetary gift that you could just them feeling appreciated and them wanting to wanting to do that and celebrating, especially when it's when it's a a peer nomination. You know, even right. more so that people really care and, and that they were recognized. So that's just great. It is. It is. It's and it's very gratifying to be able to recognize them and uh, very reinforcing uh, uh, tremendous pride. So you have what again? Turn back to this kind of evolution metaphor, but you have a very evolved mindset in terms of what business can and maybe even should be in terms of its impact on its employees and on the community. Um, is there anything that you can point to along your journey that really uh, impacted that that growth and evolution for you personally? Uh, you know, is there is there anything kind of advice that you'd give to maybe listeners that are somewhere on their journey and kind of evolving their own mindset? Uh, you know, I'm asked frequently about giving advice, and I'm very careful about that <laughs> because uh, I really believe each of us has our own individual journey to some destination, and self-discovery is what it is. I am very fortunate uh, to be surrounded by amazing people uh, who have helped me understand a lot. Uh, so I would say the most important thing is have your ears wide open and listen uh, to people and observe what your impact is on your environment. Uh, you can learn a lot from that. Uh, um, and uh, I, I think I have learned a lot from others about uh, uh, what works, what doesn't work, what I should be thinking about. Um, I, I, I think for me, uh, why community and uh, sort of this collective has been important is uh, really goes back to how I arrived to uh, America and why I wound up settling here and what that meant. Uh, and that has always drawn me to uh, uh, be part of something bigger uh, because I did wind up coming from, uh, I'm originally from Pakistan, came here to college, met my wife here, and decided to settle here. Uh, it was not this grand design. It was just, hey, my wife and I, we, we can do better over here, not economically, but uh, uh, just socially. It was easier for her to live here than go back to Pakistan. Uh, so, but it was a huge decision. I left behind my family, my friends, uh, and so uh, I wanted to be part of something. Uh, so it's that I've, I've come to learn. I may not have articulated this 30 years ago, but I've come to learn that that's very important to me. Uh, and in that context, I've been observing and listening to uh, how to better learn how to have an impact. But then when you get to the position that I'm fortunate to have, uh, I also have a great sense of responsibility about the impact one can have. Uh, and uh, um, um, I'm, I'm, I certainly connect with that. Uh, so I'd say the best advice is uh, uh, to understand yourself in the context of the environment you're in uh, and uh, um, do, the, uh, do what you have to to improve that. I love that. 
it's it's simple and it's something that I think is is accessible. It's not it's not it's not it's simple, but it's not easy. You know, to to continuously keep yeah. that in mind and to, and to keep that as an intention for your own personal evolution and, and growth to to always be be that listener, be that learner. Um, so so that's really really beautiful. Thank you. Uh, the last thing I just kind of was was looking at as we're as we're coming up on time, I'm just curious of how do you see uh, you know in the future ESL growing and evolving? What is maybe I don't know. Usually they ask five or ten years, but it's your hundredth anniversary. So what, are you, <laughs> what about what about your hundred year plan? But uh, what kinds of things are you dreaming about, and how do you see your kind of purpose and culture evolving with that? Uh, well, I I don't see our purpose evolving. I see ourselves evolving. Uh, uh, to be more true to our purpose uh, of helping our community thrive and prosper. I see a business that is going to be very aligned with that and succeeding at being part uh, of a very successful community and uh, itself then thriving. Uh, in in uh, in return, uh, obviously uh, we have been growing a lot. Uh, we uh, will continue to do that. Continue to enhance what we provide uh, our membership, what we provide the community. We will adapt to the changing needs, uh, and uh, uh, we will be a larger employer. But you know, I think it is about something you said: maintaining the culture with our growth making sure our employees are best positioned to succeed and that they're feeling very, very connected with what we're doing, that it makes a difference for them, and then ultimately making a difference for our membership and the community at large. I see the business getting much, much, continuing on its journey to get more aligned with that. I'm not sure that you ever get there, but you continually work at it. And I'm very confident with the activities we're engaging in with the commitment we have, with the processes we're putting in place, we will identify where we are inconsistent uh, with that, and we will resolve those inconsistencies uh, over time. So, I I, I think uh, uh, you know, not not thinking in a revolutionary way, but us continuing to evolve with our purpose at the center. Incredibly humble, incredibly wise. Uh, that really just that evolutionary journey, and knowing that you may never get there, but but really just continuing to to go on that journey and committing to it. So I'm so glad to have had your time today uh, to share this wisdom with our listeners. But even more so, I really appreciate all that you do each and every day, both for Rochester, uh, both inside the walls of ESL and outside, uh, to really embody conscious capitalism in our community. Thanks so much, Fahim. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Thanks, as always, to all the evolutionaries out there listening across more than 30 countries around the world. We hope that you found it to be both inspirational and full of actionable insights to guide you on your own evolutionary journey. We've grown this movement entirely by word of mouth, so if you know someone who might find value in listening to this episode, we'd be deeply grateful if you'd share it with them. And of course, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening app so that you're notified as soon as we release new episodes each week. Together, we can evolve business toward a more conscious capitalism.